said, it's been a fun series as we dive into the seven churches. Just remember the setup. This is written by John. This is Jesus' best friend. Jesus is ride or die like they were it, thick as thieves. And now, here at the end of John's life, he is on a prison island after all the other you know, apostles have been killed. Here's John, now isolated. They can't kill him. And it says it's a Sunday, and John is just worshiping by himself. He's just rolling Patmos, just, if you said it, we believe it. Hey, hey, you know, and he's just by himself praising God. And then he hears this massive trumpet behind him. And he turns around and sees this crazy image of the glorified Christ. And he hears what you see, this vision. I want you to write a letter to these seven churches about what you are seeing and hearing. That's what the whole book of Revelation is. It's John seeing this vision and then writing that vision to the churches. And even in the very beginning, chapters 2 and 3, he writes an individual letter to each of those churches. So we're looking at them week by week, one church at a time, and seeing what revelations can we pick up from this revelation from the past. Part of the reason it's fun is this is Jesus saying this is what a church should be. This is what a church needs to be careful of and avoid. I think there's so much that we can glean. And that's where it's been fun to study as we come to our next church. We're going to be in Revelation 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 12 if you're following in your own Bible. But as always, please follow along as I put it on the screen. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It is helpful, at least for me, that each of these letters follows just a clear flow and outline. He acknowledges the church. He gives that church a picture of Christ. If there's something to commend, he commends them. If there's something to criticize, he criticizes them, and then he gives them a charge. And I think there's just something we could learn from each of those sections, and so we're just going to kind of walk through those one at a time and see what God has to tell us. So first, we'll start at what is the church? So this is to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So Pergamum's the city where this church was. It's helpful to know some of the context of this city to understand what this church was up against. So I mean, this city, 
Pliny, he's a first century Roman historian, says, by far, this is the most famous city in Asia. So all the cities, that's modern-day Turkey. It was Asia to them. This is the most famous city, he says. This is the capital city of this region. I didn't want to make it a competition, but Pastor Rick turned it into that last week. A man, look whose amphitheater's bigger. Now we're in the capital. You want to talk about amphitheater, look at how impressive the capital amphitheater is. That's not really, that's not the capital. That's, that's Columbus. So it's not, I got caught up in the competition. Here we go. So this is actually Pergamum. One thing you notice right away, I would be nervous watching something there like that bad boy is steep, right? So the city is on a thousand foot kind of cone shaped hill. So now when we look for houses like, oh, are the schools good? They weren't asking that question like, oh, can the catapults reach us when like marauding nations come? Like that's why they're up on a hill. So you think of being attacked by other nations, they would put them on these massive hills for protection. So one of the things, it's a very proud city, it's a royal city, it wasn't even conquered by Rome. So in 133 BC, the king of the Adelaides just wills it over to Rome. So it's a very proud city, a capital city. So it wasn't the kind of economic force, it's now inland, so it wasn't the economic powerhouse that Ephesus and Smyrna was, but it had very strong religious political, cultural sway. So that's the city that we're looking at in Pergamum. But even if you don't know any of that, so don't feel like, oh, I read this, I wouldn't know that, you'd miss out. I want to focus. The main point is, look at what the text highlights about this city. What does the text say about this church in this city? To the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. How about being the tour guide in that city? You know, welcome everybody to Pergamum. If you look off to my left, your right, you see uh, Satan's throne up on the hill. Don't touch it. It's hot. I'm kidding, but don't touch it. It's Satan's throne, right? Like, crazy. Like, that's what this city's known for. I remember I used to travel up to the college in IUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania. It was famous because, like, that's where Jimmy Stewart was from. Imagine your hometown. Like, I'm from Pergamum. Hey, isn't that where the devil lives? That's his hometown, right? Yeah, he lives off Route 8. He's jacking with traffic all the time. uh... Crazy. Like, that's what your city is known for. And one of the things, you know, scholars debate what is. So John is thinking of something with Satan's throne. But there were so many pagan altars and gods and temples, it's hard to even know which one. Like, Zeus had a massive altar in Pergamum. And Zeus is like like kind of the big dog amongst the gods for them, right? Is that what he's talking about? There's the god Asclepius. He was the healer. They referred to him as the healer and the savior. People would travel kind of all over the region to come there to get healed. Anybody else that you could think of go by the name healer and savior? Man, is that kind of what he's talking about, Satan's throne. I think I'm most compelled, and we don't know for sure, I mean, the biggest competitor to Christ in this time is the imperial cult, is Rome. The biggest competitor to Jesus is Lord, is Caesar is Lord. And they had a very high status amongst the imperial cult with Caesar worship. That's probably what's going on here. So, but here's the deal. 
you know, it's unclear of exactly what temple he's talking about, referring to Satan's throne. But what is clear is this is a dark place. Satan exists in the world and moves, you know, in this world, and there is demonic activity. He's triggering us. Look, this city, it's not just that Satan exists there. He has a special authority there, that this is a dark place. I remember traveling around with certain mission trips, you know, you go where there's very little gospel witness, and we'd go to town, and we'd have a church service. And I remember a couple of times we'd go through, and we would just drive through a town. I'm like, well, why didn't we stop there? You can't stop there. That would out the believers. They would get persecuted, maybe killed. There was a couple of times we just would drive through the town, and then two people would, like, jump out of the van, and then we'd, like, sneak into a little house church. The people that went into that town said, it, you can feel it. It was a dark place. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. That's Pergamum. It was dark. And Satan had a particular foothold in this town. So understand the church, the context, that that's the church, the church is located in this town, and think of what they would have been facing. So that's the city we're looking at, and remember kind of the picture of Christ given with each church There's one vision, but they're given a particular aspect about Christ. So what does this church need to hear about Christ? Here's what the letter from Christ and the picture of Christ. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell. I included Christ's first words for a reason. You see the picture of him, but it really spoke to me, and Pastor Rick pointed it out and, and hearing it again. The first words of Christ are understanding and empathy. They're in a hard place. You might be in a hard place, your workplace, your family. And what picture of Christ? One is one of empathy. He says, look, man, I know it's hard. I know what you're going through. And what I, I want to point out is there is empathy And these are people in Satan's backyard, his hometown, if you will. And he's going to go rebuke them. They led astray. So I want you to hear this. Look, you may come from a broken place. You may come from a very difficult place. You have God's empathy, but you don't have excuses. How many of us, we use our difficult setting as an excuse to stray and walk away from him? That's too far. He says, look, I understand I get it, it's hard. I get, maybe you feel like your home was Satan's house and you grew up in his backyard and God knows you have his empathy, but not excuses. We still need to be faithful in the midst of hard situations. So those are the first words I want to point out. But I want to really bring us to what is the picture of Christ that he gives him? It is him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we see it kind of later and in the first vision. This is actually Jesus, the picture. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. You know, like magicians do that like little like colored thing out of their mouth. It's like that, except a sword. You know, he takes a sword out of his mouth, the Roman sword. And I think there's something that he wants us to glean from that. The sword was a picture of power and authority. They're in a really hard place. And it seems like Rome and ultimately Satan has so much power over their life. Part of how you could tell, this is why you know they had political sway, 
is you can kind of determine the rank of a governor of a government by whether they carried this. That's the Latin phrase, iudis gladii. You can see the word gladiator. Whether they had the right of the sword. Remember when the Jews had to take Jesus to the Romans because they weren't allowed to perform capital punishment? This place was. In a very dark place where the government had the ability to take your life. They had the right of the sword. And they're afraid, and maybe you feel that. So many things, your boss, maybe your spouse, have all, they have all this power over you. Jesus pulls a sword out of his mouth and says, I have ultimate authority. I have ultimate power. Whatever you're afraid of and you're bowing down to and cowering before, you should really bow down to me. I don't know why this came to mind, but scholars disagree, but most scholars in agreement, Crocodile Dundee is one of the greatest movies of all time. Minor debate, but I think we all can agree. And I just thought of kind of the famous scene from Crocodile Dundee. If you've never seen it, you know, Mick Dundee's from the bush, the outback, and he's just kind of this crazy guy. They bring him to New York. Hilarity ensues. It's a great time. The most famous scene, and most of you know the quote that's coming. So Mick Dundee's in New York, and he's get, about to get mugged. You know, dude jumps out like, you got a light <laughs> and your wallet. And he pulls out a knife on Mick Dundee. And Crocodile Dundee is totally relaxed. You know, and the lady's with like, aren't you scared? He's like, why? She goes, oh, he has a knife. Aren't you scared? And then the famous line, you know what's coming. That's not a knife. That's a knife. And he pulls out a massive Bowie knife, and then he, like, flays the dude's jacket like a boss, you know? Like, I mean, we quoted that line over and over growing up. If I had a dollar for every time I quoted that line, I'd have multiple dollars. I mean, yeah, I, we would always do that. That's not a knife. That's a knife. Right? So who had the, whoever has the biggest knife has the most authority. I'm not afraid of you with your dinky switchblade. Listen to what this scholar said. The sovereign Christ with the two-edged sword would remind the threatened congregation that the ultimate power over life and death belongs to who? I'm going to make you say it. The ultimate power over life and death belongs to who? Why are you so afraid? Why am I so afraid of all these people that seem like they have so much power and authority over my life? The Bible says, yeah, they may be able to inflict life and death over your body. Fear the one that can affect your eternity. I want you to remember that. Whatever you feel like has such sway over your life, Jesus says, look, I ultimately have power and authority over your life. Who are you going to fear? That little dinky knife, whatever that is wielding power over you, or Christ with the ultimate sword, the ultimate power and authority. So that's what they need reminded of. Let's see what they get commended for. He tells the church, you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. Sometimes when you want to criticize somebody, you know, you just butter them up with a nice compliment first. That's not what's happening here. I mean, this is worthy to be commended. 
what do we have here? We have a martyr. We have people being killed, not because, you know, some silly persecution or, oh, you know, my neighbors aren't as nice to me. And I, like, we have somebody being killed because they would not deny Christ. Pastor Rick did a great job of think how easy it would be to rationalize this. I mean, your faith, all you got to do is just say Caesar is Lord. Pay just a little tribute. You don't even have to mean it. You can walk away and continue to worship Christ. He wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it in the face of death, would you? See, the Romans, they made crucifixion their primary engine. The church history tells us that the Greeks, their method, this guy was roasted alive. And I mean roasted. Like what they did, they had a brazen bowl and they would put a fire underneath it. It was a specialty oven. They would crank an oven and just cook them. Imagine being faced with that decision. Just come on. Just say Caesar is Lord. And say I want what he's done in my life. I'm going to stand before him soon enough. I will not back down. He is my Lord. You can preheat that oven. Let's go. That's commendable. With all this pressure in this dark place of Satan, they wouldn't deny Christ. Wow. Would we have that kind of faith? Now, as they're reading this letter in Pergamum, and I love, I want to point out one more thing. So this, so Antipas, he proclaimed Christ. We use that word witness, right? You know, you're going to tell somebody about Jesus in the church world. We witness to him like, yeah, I was trying to witness to my neighbor. And, I, you know, we was out witnessing. And it's kind of like this soft term, like, oh, but I didn't want to witness to him because it might have been awkward, and I didn't want to be uncomfortable, so I didn't witness to him, but I wanted to witness to him. You know what that word for witness is? It's martis. Maybe you heard it. It's where we get our word for martyr. Now, in the Bible, there's two meetings, and it kind of even transitioned, and sometimes you don't even know which one it's talking about. Telling somebody about Jesus or dying for Jesus. For them, it was basically the same. Right? Like telling people that know I follow him could and did result in people dying. Man, would we have that kind of faith? But as they're reading this letter in Pergamum, they think, well, man, aren't we awesome? And then comes the, there's some things we got to talk about. So let's get into what is the criticism. Jesus tells the church, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I want to point out it does say some. So through these seven churches, there's some churches that are just good churches. There's some churches that are bad churches. And then some have a mix. And this is one with a mix. Man, you got good and you got some bad. But notice as well, you can have some good in a church, even the church with mixed people. There's different groups. Right? They're not all. He talked about them. Some are being unfaithful. 
So even in, you know, good churches, you can have a mixed bag of not everybody is good. And I want you to think about that because people will come to, you know, redemption sometimes and they'll just start bad talking how their church was a bad church. Please don't do that. It's not often helpful. But then they'll want to ask me about our church. Well, my church was judgmental. Was this church judgmental like that? And I always feel weird because I can't guarantee. Like we're a big church. There's a lot of people in here. I can't be like... Yeah, you're good. Nobody's judgmental. Come on in. Like, I can't promise to anybody, like, no, you'll never be treated poorly. Like, Because in a church, there's a lot of people, and you could have a mixed bag. I can tell you our heart, and tell you our vision or desire to follow the scriptures, and to walk like Jesus walked. But man, it's, there's a mix. In church, you have good folks, and then some might be bad folks. But let's dive into this criticism. To kind of boil it down, you have idolatry and immorality. We're going to unpack this a little bit. You know, food sacrificed to idols. You know, this food would be sacrificed, and you eating it would be almost an acknowledgement of their deity. And you had Christians eating this meat, and you had sexual immorality. So that's what we're dealing with. So I think in particular what this church struggled with, right? So here we are in this dark place. You know, we're talking about Satan's hometown. Satan comes right at him. Deny Christ or you're going to die. And they say, then I'll die because I will never deny him. And you'd think they were okay, right? Maybe they let their guard down. And so Satan, instead of with a full frontal attack, it's okay. They got that front door locked down. Well, how about let's go around that back door? Why don't we just sneak in a side window? Because he knew he couldn't get him to deny their faith, but he could corrupt them. See, in some churches, apostasy is to walk away from Christ. He couldn't get this. Satan couldn't get this church to commit apostasy, but he could get him to commit hypocrisy. And that's the problem. They weren't apostate, but they were hypocrites. Some of them, not everybody. And then now, we're starting to hit a little closer to home in church that we struggle with, right? How many churches can proclaim Christ and everybody in there proclaims Christ but there's tons of hypocrisies, tons of immorality. And here is what those people taught. You know, the Nicolaitans, they would say, oh, you know, there's no more law. The Old Testament law is gone. Just say you proclaim in Jesus and you can live however you want. How prevalent is that today? I'm a Christian. You sleep with whatever you want. None of that matters. You can date whoever you want. It doesn't, you, your life strays so far from what you say you believe. So yes, they talk the talk, but many of them were no longer walking in the walk. They were hypocrites. They were bowing down to idols. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but just struggling with immorality. See, Ephesus, and that's where I love seeing all these different pictures. So Ephesus was this holy huddle, super judgmental. I mean, everybody, they would just turn inward. And we don't want to be that kind of church where, oh, you know, just dirty sinners out there. But so some, we just swing the pendulum. And you swing that pendulum too far, you can live however you want. I'm a Christian. I live worldly. I don't look any different than the world. But no, I'm a Christian. Well, time out, time out, time out. I want to be a church that's about a relationship with Christ. Do you know what Christ says about being in a relationship with him? If you love me, 
you'll obey my commands. You can't separate your holiness and your life from your proclamation of being a Christian. How many people that proclaim to be a Christian, and man, their life looks very different. So that sword, how many times do you see it paired in Scripture with God's Word? So you see that. I'm a Christian. Okay, the big question is, does this have ultimate authority over your life? Or do you live however you want? You live out your sexuality however you want? And okay, is Jesus really Lord then? I want to talk about Balaam a little bit. Because I think idolatry and immorality are very linked, and I want to try to explain some of that connection a little bit. So you can't just be a hypocrite and say you're Christian and not live it out. But when you look at Balaam, I think he kind of helps us understand more of the idolatry that's going on. If you have time, this week, read Numbers chapter 22 through 25. That's the story where this comes out of. It's a fascinating story. This is where you got donkeys talking. It's crazy. So go back and read it. When I read it, I was amazed. Balaam looks like a stud. See, when the Israelites, when they get out of Egypt... Right? They go to the promised land. It's not like it was just like a, a highway, like a toll road, like come on through, you know, seven bucks, or it's like 50 bucks now to go on a highway. I don't know. They, they went through nations. So the king, Balak, sees a nation in his backyard one morning and knows, man, God is moving them. He wigs out, so he gets a prophet. He pays money to Balaam to curse them because he doesn't want them to take over his country. And so Balaam goes, so that, all right. And he listens to God And then instead of cursing them like the king paid him to do, he blesses them. The king loses his stuff. That happens three times. And Balaam looks like a stud. He says, you know what? I can only do what God tells me to do. You can give me a house full of gold, a house full of silver. I'm only going to proclaim what God says. That's the guy that they're knocking right now. Wait, what's the deal? Again, his convictions seem to be there but so was so much of his corruption. How many churches can preach good conviction, but they're corrupt? So Balaam, what we find out later in Scripture, wants to still keep the king's money, and he doesn't proclaim a curse, but when he leaves, he goes and gets a bunch of other women from that area to go and sleep with all the Israelite men. Now again, you ever... Catching a little closer to home, I can't relate to that. But how many people, man, I'm devoted to Christ, but I'm going to marry somebody who isn't. And think about what that does to being able to stay devoted to him. So they get the women from there and get all the men to sleep around and then just corrupt them and get them to walk in sin. Listen to what Second Peter says about Balaam. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Here's a guy, looks like a stud, says a lot of the right things, gives God a lot of lip service, but ultimately, who's his God? Money. And then once, man, he respects God, gives God lip service, once ultimately money is his God, that's where idolatry and immorality are connected. The second God is not your North Star, and you look to anything for power and security in your life, you will walk in immorality. Set the clock. Because I think he may have even wanted to do the right thing, but money was his God. Are there any churches, any Christians like that? 
where on Sunday they worship Almighty God, and Monday it's the Almighty Dollar. How many people, when we get into the workplace, we can be a little corrupt, do whatever, because if I don't, if I'm honest, or if I'm open about my faith in Christ, it may affect my bottom line. Okay, so ultimately, who do you worship? I mean, how many Christians, who they are on Sunday is very different than who they are Monday through Friday. Can I ask you something? The way you treat people in church, the way you treat people in kid zone, is that any different than the way you treat your coworkers or are those about the same? Right? He's saying, look, you can't just say you're a Christian and go to church and give lip service. You need to live it out and be Jesus. And then particularly, I know people, if you're faced with that, if I'm outspoken about my faith or if I'm more honest in my practices, I may lose my job. So be it. Or do you say, you know, I'm going to worship God. But we get corrupt how many churches the same way? We can say we proclaim Jesus, but then it's just money is really our God. So are you different throughout the week? Do you really serve him or do you serve money and give God lip service? Like, do you, are you a Christian or is this like really the authority in your life? When this tells you something, you do it. Not because of legalism, but because you love him so much that you want to please him. And that's what they struggled with. They were struggling with hypocrisy, giving God lip service, but being very different. And here's where it really affected their bottom line. See, you got to understand, okay, I'm guessing you don't struggle with food sacrificed to idols. I've never been in that situation, really, so it's not a hard thing. But for them, see, here's the deal. Here's why that was such a big deal. To work in that town, you'd be in the guild. If you want to be a metal worker, you had to be in the metal workers' guild. So think a union. So you had to be in that union or you couldn't work in that town. Again, I remember mission trips going down to Mexico one time. Like in the cabs, you couldn't be a cabbie unless you were part of like the official cab driver's union. And then anybody else, they would get real jumpy because you're taken from their profits. So you had to be one of them to make a living. So we fly in and the missionary there is going to pick us up. And the way it looks, it looks like he's a cab driver stealing their fares. It looks like a tour guide. So we're flying in. We land in Mexico, and they start wigging out. And they're, like, yelling, and, you know, and I hear our missionary trying to explain, like, no, mi hermanos. And I'm like, yeah, hermanos. I don't speak Spanish, so I was just, like, with him, you know. But he's just like, trying to explain, these are just my friends. This isn't, I, I'm not getting paid for this. So they pin us in. So, like, they get their cabs and, like, pin us in at the airport. And so he, like, reverses, flips over a curb and drives out. Because they're passionate. You can't work in this town unless you're one of us. It was the same back then. You can't work in this town unless you're part of the union. Well, what happened at union meetings? They were celebrations of a god. They were festivals. And a huge part of keeping your job was partaking in these festivals. You had to eat the food sacrificed to idols. Now do you see why that was such a hard choice? To not do that would cost you your job maybe cost you your life. What decision are you making? Well, uh, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. You know, I'll just, I'll just eat some of that food or I'll just corrupt myself a little bit here and there and there's grace. We love the amazing race. Anybody else watch the amazing race? 
I watch that show where you travel around, you have to do all these different things to get a clue. In one of them, you'd always have to go to like a temple and bow down to get your next clue. And we always think about, oh, that'd be crazy. You know, most people would say, well, oh, you know, it just doesn't matter. You worship how you want, now just pay a little respect. That's a million dollars. All you got to do is bow down. To be a Christian, you'd have to just stand out. Look, I can't do that. I don't serve money, and I'm not going to corrupt myself and give lip service if that is not who I truly am. So what is the charge in the midst of this hypocrisy? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with a sword, with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm coming, and there will be judgment. If you want to dabble in the world and you want to dabble kind of close to such worldliness, know that I'm coming. I just watched the clip again from We Were Soldiers. It's a good movie. It's kind of this war movie. In this one scene, the enemy's right there coming at them, and they're just firing, and they're right there. So what do they do? They call in an airstrike. And so there's the guy on the radio calling in the coordinates, and they're pow, 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 pow dropping bombs, and they're still coming. And they're like, it's even closer. So they draw the coordinates closer. Bam, 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 and just lights up the hillside. And then they're still closer. And I, here's why I thought of this, because that phrase that comes out in many of these movies, they say, look, they're right on top of us. It's danger close. Like, drop it right next to us. And then so many of those people get caught up in the flames. How many of you in your life between following Christ and worldliness, you are danger close. Like how you live your life is so far from what you say you are as a Christian. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to drop the bomb. Judgment is coming. Are you clarifying? Are you with them or are you with me? If you're with me, then live it out. You can't just flirt with the world and live however you want. You are danger close and judgment's coming. So he says, repent. Are you a Christian in name only? Or is this the authority in your life? Or are you just dabbling so far? It's hard to tell. Are you them? Or are you, you know, his? He says, you can't be a hypocrite as a Christian. You can't just proclaim it. You have to live it. So that was the charge. Repent. When I think of so many things in my life, I just dabble with worldliness. To go the other way, repent, because judgment is coming. One of the things that I love here is the promise that comes with it. God's saying, look, be faithful. Stop living so much like the world. If you're mine, if you really love me, then obey me, then look like me, then walk with me. Let's do this as opposed to just being hypocrites that say we're about this. So if that's you, live like it. And I know, again, that's the fear. It could cost me. It might cost me relationships. It might cost me my job. I may lose clients. Who do you serve? You serve God or money. If it's him, then do that and risk loss. And that's where I love the promise that comes with it. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And if you go all out for him, it might cost you. 
look at the promise. When you see that word manna, remember God's people in the wilderness when they were going to starve. There was bread from heaven. Manna is God's miraculous provision. You're so afraid to serve him because of the consequences. He says, yes, there might be consequences, but if you go all out for me and serve me and walk with me, you'll have my miraculous provision. You can serve the almighty dollar and see how that protects you. Or you can go all out for me and never corrupt and try to be pure and blameless in his sight. It may cost you, but you will have his miraculous provision in your life. He gives us what we need to make these tough decisions. He gives us his provision. I want to end with that beautiful picture of that white stone and the new name written on it. You understand if you go all out for him, do you know that? Like when you become his, he gives you a new name that nobody else knows. I love that. And name is so much more than a nickname. He gives you a name was an identity. So at that conference just yesterday, the speaker had us go through this exercise. He said, I want you, and I want you to think about this right now, what your old identity is. He said, hello, my name is Jared, and I am, and fill in the blank. That's what we identify. I am. Some of you put your job. Some of you put, but then some of our identities I was ashamed. Do you know how many negative things were me before I got to what was positive about me? Some of you are going by your old name. You're a drunk. You're a loser. You're ugly. You're pathetic. And that is a part of who I think I am. Like part of it, I feel pathetic. I feel worthless. And how many of you still identify with your old name? Stop calling yourself that. That's not really who you are. That's not your identity. Every night when I put my daughter to bed, I tell her who she really is. And I have a nickname that I give her. And it's a name that I, identity I speak over her. What are you speaking over yourself of who you are? Stop calling yourself that. Because you have a new name. God looks at you and says, you are loved. You're my child. And he gives you a special name and a new identity. You don't have to be afraid of what this world can do. We have the provision and a new identity in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm grateful that you understand what we're going through. So many of us are in the thick of it right now. It feels like Satan's having a field day in our life. Thank you that you know. Would we hear that from you, that you know what we're going through? But God, help us to not just use that as an excuse. God, help us to honor you, even if it costs us our job, our lives, would we honor you not just with our words, but with our whole life. And as scary as that is, help us to trust that you will provide for us and that we would live out of our new identity as loved children of yours. In Jesus' name, amen.